Free in Christ is our theme for 2014 here at Northside. Uh, all of our series will be about different kinds of freedom, and uh, we come to the end of a series now called Free from Sin. Uh, we've been talking about a lot about sin. We started out with that topic of understanding how bad sin is, how much God hates it and detests it and can have it in His presence. And we spent a couple of weeks talking about God and His nature and the two sides of His nature, if you want to think of it that way. One is perfect holiness, so He can't stand sin, but the other side is His perfect love and uh, justice, uh, his love and uh, forgiveness and mercy. So He wants to forgive sin. He wants to have us in a relationship with Him. Uh, we talked about the best plan ever, how God dealt with this problem that He had. And uh, we looked through that plan in some detail, I think, and then last week talked about how it's a lifetime guarantee that Jesus' blood continually cleanses us from all sin. Uh, today we're going to talk about help in the battle. And as I said, this is our last in this series. Uh, we've talked a lot about sin, and we understand that we all have sinned. And we understood how we got to the plan and how we claimed that best plan ever and how that was a lifetime guarantee and the blood continually cleanses us. Uh, but sin in our life still causes us problems. Sin still makes us wonder about things. Uh, personally, and sometimes we look at others and wonder how could they do that or or. Something like sin is a, it's the problem of man. Satan is still active. He's still after us. And so as we go through the rest of our life, even with the, the best plan ever and the lifetime guarantee, I think we need to understand a little bit more about sin. So let's think through this. First, we know that we don't want to sin. Now, uh, I said last week, sometimes we sin rebelliously and sometimes we think we want to sin and all that. But as a lifestyle, we don't want to sin. Christians, once we become followers of Christ, once we understand God's nature, once we understand the awfulness of sin, we don't want to sin. Now, there's a lot of reasons that we don't want to sin. And I put them on your handout. One is because of Him. Because of what He's done for us, because He loves us so much, we love Him and we don't want to sin for His sake. Second Corinthians 5.14, Paul said, Christ's love constrains us. It compels us. You ask a question after hearing about grace and all of that, then, then oh, why wouldn't you just sin all you want? Well, Christ's love constrains you. I heard a story one time about a, a wife who was married to a husband who was not a good husband. He was strict and harsh and unloving. In fact, he went so far as to make a list of things that she had to do, things that he demanded from her, 20 things that he expected and had no would bear no breaking of that list. She had to do them consistently every week all the time uh, to please him. Now, she did them because he was harsh and strict. She did them, but it irritated her. 
She griped it to herself. She complained in her mind. She hated doing them. And finally, after many years of marriage, he died. And after a few years of widowhood, she found a kind, loving, undemanding man and married him. She lived very happily for five years or so. And one day she was cleaning some drawers out and she found at the bottom of one drawer that old list. Those 20 things that her first husband had demanded. She sat down in a chair and went through the list and with tears running down her face, she realized she was doing all 20 of them. Did every one of them. Never complained. Never even thought about it. It was no burden. She did it out of love. Yeah. So when we become Christians and we understand Christ's love for us and all that we've talked about in this series... It's not about law-keeping. It's not about making sure we don't break this law or do that. It's because of Him. We want to do what He wants. We want to please Him. The other reason we don't want to sin is because of us. We know from the book that sin destroys the abundant life. The rules aren't for to take away our fun or our joy or to make us miserable. The rules are to make life better. So we don't want to sin. We want to stay away from it because we see what sin does to people's lives, and we don't want that in our families. The third reason we don't want to sin is because of the world. Matthew chapter 5 tells us that Christians are to be salt and light. We're supposed to make a difference in the world. We live just like the world. We make no difference. So there's a lot of reasons that we don't want to sin. But secondly, we we know that we're still tempted to sin. This is the conflict that that Paul saw. Romans chapter seven and verse twenty one. I think I printed it on your handout for you. He said, "I find this law at work." He said, "When I want to do good." Evil's right there with me. Uh, For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. I don't want to sin. But I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. I'm tempted. I don't want to sin. But I'm still tempted. The, the, The flesh is still working. Satan is still working on me. And the third thing we know is that we're not alone, that we've got help in this battle. So in this last lesson, I think this is what we, what I hope we can understand is, I know we don't want to sin, but I know we're all tempted. But the good news is we've got help. We've got help in this battle. And I've listed seven ways that God helps us in this battle. We're going to go through them very quickly. Most of you know them, you've heard them, you understand them. I just want to go through them quickly, and and I want you to think about them a little bit differently today. Don't just think about, oh yeah, God does that for us. Think about the opposite. Think about what Satan would like instead of this. How he tries to combat them. So seven things that God helps us in this battle. First, he provided a book. 
And I know that's very basic and very simple. So are the rest of the seven. If you're looking for profound, you've come to the wrong place. (laughs) This is very basic, simple stuff. He's provided a book. Now, not just any book, the book. 2 Timothy 3.16 says about it, Scripture is God-breathed. It's from God, and it's useful. It's not just something you have to study for your Sunday school lesson. It's good for you. It's useful. It's useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness. And if you use the book... The servant of God can be thoroughly equipped for every good work. He provided us this most amazing book. It's from him. It's God-breathed. Look at all those things it's useful for. Teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. You think that's not help in the battle? You think it's not something we can help others with in the battle? Now... If that's one thing God did, step back for just a second and think, what do you think Satan thinks about that? you think Satan's in favor of daily Bible reading plans? Satan doesn't mind the Bible as long as it's up on the shelf and when you pick it up, it's, it's a little bit dusty. That's okay. You can have all you want in the house. Just don't believe that it's useful. Just don't spend time in it. Because that's a help in the battle. Satan doesn't want you to have any help in the battle. He wants to win the battle. He wants you to get you over to his side. Besides providing a book, second, Jesus, or God, put us in a family. Sometimes we don't think about what a gift this is. He put us in a family. Hebrews 10.24 says, let us consider, us, the church, consider how we can spur one another on to love and good works. The next verse says, so don't stop getting together. Get together all the time. Help each other. Encourage each other. That's a help in the battle. Now, it's easy to figure out what Satan wants, isn't it? Satan would suggest, why don't you stay away from the family? In this battle that we're waging, it'd be okay if you don't go see the family very often. It'd be okay if you really don't get to know the family. Just stay away from them. Don't mess with them. They're not a whole lot of fun. Just stay with your other friends. See, that would be a kind of a satanic good idea, wouldn't it? But God gave us this family to help us, to build each other up, to support each other, to bear each other burdens. You read all of the one another verses in the New Testament, and you start to see what this family is for. God gave us this for a purpose. He put us in here for a purpose. Third, he puts good people in our path. Through his providence, he gets good people in our path. And many of them are in the church. There's good people out in the world, too, that he'll get in our path that can help us with this or that and lead us some direction. And you say, what do you mean good people? Well, look at the opposite. 
verse. I put it on your hand up. 1 Corinthians 15, 33. Paul said, don't be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. If you want good character, if you want to help in this battle against sin, then stay with good people. You get with bad company, and it's going to corrupt. Make good choices. You see, and I'm not just showing you what God proposes and what Satan proposes. I'm, I'm hoping you're thinking that, well, I've got to choose between these. God puts good people in your path. And you can either choose to associate with them and learn from them and help them t- at the same time, or you can choose bad company because it's more fun. Sin is fun, the Bible says, for a season, for a little while. So he puts good people in our path. We should take advantage of that. Fourth, getting good now, he personally, personally, God does this. You say, how can he do this for every person? Well, he's omnipotent. He's God. He personally limits Satan. I put a picture of a lion on here because that's one thing that the Bible calls Satan. If you encountered a lion in that situation, would it make you a little nervous? You notice there's no bars or window or anything there in between. This is out on the plains in Africa. And if, if a lion was that close, would you be a little nervous? I know you're trying to act tough, but you'd be nervous. Okay, I, I've been that close to a roaring lion before. Well, it was about three-quarter inch glass between me and him. I wasn't worried a bit. You can go over to Sedgwick County Zoo and do the same thing. It won't bother you because he's limited. He's constrained. He, he, he can't go past where the zookeeper has limited him. This is a great verse, folks. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Might be the best promise in the New Testament. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. Now, that's just kind of an introduction. That says don't think you're special. Don't think you're in the worst situation that ever happened. All temptations are common to man. I know it seems the worst to you, but it's, it's common. Everybody in the world has... Temptations. But then here's the good part. God's faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. You realize the extent of that promise? That is saying that God is watching you personally. He knows what your temptation is. See, we all got different temptations. Some things that bother you don't bother me a bit. Some things that tempt me drive you crazy. God knows that. Guess who else knows that? (laughs) Satan. He knows exactly what bothers me. So he didn't test me with what bothers you. He tests me with what he knows will bother old Steve. He pours it on. And when he sees he's making a little success, he pours more and he pours a little bit more. And at some point, God says, whoa, stop right there. That's what this verse says. God personally stops Satan. He says, no, you cannot do that to my servant, Steve. I'm not sure he could bear it. 
That's a great promise. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that's help in the battle, folks. That's big help in the battle. Stop right there. He limits Satan personally for you. Fifth, the rest of the verse, he always makes a way out. Listen to the second part of 1 Corinthians 10, 13. When you're tempted, not only does he limit Satan, but when you're tempted, he will also always provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. Not only does he limit Satan to what you can bear, but whenever Satan does have you in a temptation, whatever the situation is, if you'll just look around, there is a way out. Guarantee you. Somebody ever sits down and tells you in counseling or when your teen comes home or something, there was nothing I could do. I couldn't get out of it. No, you didn't look hard enough. There was a way you could get out. Yeah, because God provided it. God, God knew the situation you were in. He knows how much you can bear. He had stopped Satan from doing that. But since you're in a temptation... To help you in the battle, he provided a way out. He made an emergency evacuation route. Now, I didn't say it would be easy. It might be embarrassing. It might take a little gumption. It might take something to go take that route. It might cost you something even. But you can get out. Remember Joseph? He was a slave. He got this greatest job in Egypt. Working for Potiphar, I mean, he, he was had it made, except for Mrs. Potiphar. She was a problem. And finally one day she cornered him all alone and made the move on him. And, and Joseph looked around, and you know what he found? There's a door right there. I can get out of here. Now, it's going to be embarrassing because she's probably going to lie about me. It's probably going to cost me my job, but I'm not going to sin. And he ran. He ran out of the place. There's always a way out. God provides the way out. Now, Satan, we kind of forgot him here for a second. Think about this. Satan would prefer you didn't know that. Satan would prefer that you thought, oh man, this temptation is overwhelming. I cannot bear this. I'm just going to have to succumb to it. Satan would prefer that you didn't know there was a way out. That you thought, I'm trapped. I can't get out of this one. I'll just have to go ahead and sin and deal with it later. No. Always a way out. Sixth, God dresses us and arms us for battle. We just sang the song about put on the full armor of God. Put on the panoply of God. Panoply means everything, all of it, the full armor, the full dress. God provides all that for us. Let's just read through Ephesians 6, 10 through 17. Listen to this now. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. You get that? What are we doing here? We're battling. We don't want to sin. We're still tempted. We got help. How do we deal with the devil's schemes? Put on the full armor of God. Dress up. Get ready. 
our struggles not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God. This stuff's not made out of steel and tin and mail and tungsten and titanium or anything. This stuff, listen to what the armor is. Put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. After you've done everything to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. Okay, this is a picture This is a picture that Paul dreamed up, and he said, they will love this in Sunday school. Sunday school teachers will use this for centuries. So so I'm not just going to say, take truth. I'm going to make it the belt of truth. And they can picture dressing up in all of this. Truth. If you've got truth on your side, you're going to be better off in the battle. The breastplate of righteousness. Whose righteousness? Are you going to put your breastplate of righteousness on? No, I'm dressed in his righteousness, thank you. That'll help me a whole lot more in the battle. With your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Whatever he shoots at you, the shield of faith will handle it. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Did did you hear the verbs in there? Take up. Put on. Take the sword. We've got to do something. Every morning when you get up, you've got to decide, are you going to get dressed that day and go to work, or are you going to sit around all day in your pajamas? I realize some people go out in public in pajamas these days, but you really shouldn't. So you've got to decide if you're going to get dressed up or not. And when you get up and go into the Christian battle, are you going to put the full armor on or not? That's going to be a help in the battle if you do. Now, what's Satan's advice? Don't worry about this stuff. Uh, don't, don't, don't think about having truth on your side. Don't think about faith defeating things. Don't, don't think about wearing a helmet uh, that you're saved make, makes a difference. Don't think about any of that. Just think from a worldly point of view, i got to do this all on my own. I've got to deal with all the people at work and all the people at school and take all of their abuse and... I got to do it myself. Don't think about all these helps you can put on. That's Satan's point of view. I, I not only said he dresses us, but I, I thought it was worth saying he arms us also. That verse in Ephesians does say, take the sword of the Spirit. But Hebrews 4.12 tells us more about it. Hebrews 4.12 says the Word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. If you've got the sword of the spirit, if you know what's in the book, you can cut apart anything that comes after you. Any argument of Satan, any argument of any of his buddies, 
Anything that Satan proposes, you can cut it apart if you've got the sword of the Spirit. If your arm, that's what Jesus did, remember? Jesus was personally tempted face to face by Satan. And everything Satan threw at him, what did Jesus do? Here's a verse you might want to think about Satan. Satan fled out of there. Yeah, that's how powerful the Spirit, the sword of the Spirit is. All right, last, seventh. God operates the hotline. He operates the hotline. The verse I put there comes right after Ephesians 6. says, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. Yeah, so I know we're supposed to pray all the time. I know it ought to be part of our daily life. We ought to talk about everything with God. But because of the topic today, I'm calling it the hotline because we're in a battle. And God's there. He's ready to help. Some of you may have seen the movie or read the book, The Lone Survivor. Story of a SEAL team that went into a very dangerous area before they left. Commanders told them, now, if you get in there and you get trapped, you get in trouble, things aren't going well, just get on the radio. Just get on the radio and call for us. Call for extraction and we'll come get you. We'll be there like that. Well, they got trapped. The seals got in a troubled spot. The seals needed to get out. They picked up the radio and the radio didn't work. Couldn't get through. They were there without help. They had to fight it on their own. All but one were killed. They fought a gallant fight, but they had to do it alone. God says we don't have to do it alone. God says, not only do I provide all of this other help that I've been telling you about, not only that, but I've got a hotline that all you got to do is call up. Just tell me. I'm in this situation, and I cannot see the way out right now, God. Could, could you make it a little clearer to me, perhaps? I think he will. I think he answers the hotline every time. Now, I think that's a lot of help, folks. I called it help in the battle. But you go back through that list. Take that home with you. You're dealing with sin. You're being tempted. All that. Just sit down and look through that list of seven things. you got the book. you got a family. you got good people in your path. you got a personalized limit on Satan. You've got a way out guaranteed. You've got armor. And you've got a wicked mean sword. And you've got a hotline. Now you sit down and read that list, and I'll bet if you're really struggling with a sin, a special temptation, that you aren't using all seven of those. I bet some of them, you have listened to Satan and forgot about some of these things. You start putting all seven of those into effect, you're going to have help in the battle. When we understand how much help we get, Tied on with all the stuff we already know about Christ's blood continually cleansing and all of that. The verse that was read before I got up here makes sense now. Philippians 1.6. Paul was confident. The Christians in Philippi, did they have any problems? Yeah, they had some problems. 
Were they tempted by sin? Yeah, they were tempted by sin. You know what Paul told them? He said, I am confident of this. I'm so confident of this. I believe that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Uh, Sunday nights we've been talking about the end times and what's going to happen when Jesus comes back and all that. Tonight we're going to talk about the final judgment. That's what Paul's talking about. He says, I am so confident that now that you are free from sin, he's begun a good work in you. I'm confident he's going to carry it on until the day Jesus comes back. That's helping the battle. Being free from sin is a wonderful, marvelous thing. The song says it's more amazing than word or pen could ever tell. So, so I know I haven't conveyed it. I've spent six weeks trying to tell you how wonderful it is to be free from sin. The benefits of what it means and why and the help that we get and all of that. I know I haven't got it across very well. But I hope those of you who are free from sin have an increased appreciation now. When you, when you think about it and what it really means and God's nature and the, the awfulness of sin and all that, that it means more to you to be free from sin. For everyone here, but especially one group, I want to ask you one question. I want to ask you, are you free from sin? I'm asking the ones that are old enough to know what I'm talking about. Old enough to have understood the six lessons that we've just had. Are you free from sin? I want to ask you, I'm going to tell you the story of two men and then we'll be done. The question is, are you free from sin? For the last five weeks, and today, that's what we've been talking about. We've talked about God's nature We've talked about God and sin. We've talked about God's justice and his grace. We've talked about the best plan ever and how he worked that out and what Jesus did. We've talked about specifically how you claim that plan, how it happens at baptism. We've talked about how you trust in Jesus and his atoning work on the cross. When you trust in him, then you'll obey. You'll do whatever he says. And he asks you to be baptized to receive this gift. We've talked about the lifetime guarantee that comes with it. And and I think all of it was pretty understandable. So if you put all that together, if you've been here for those lessons, then I want you to truthfully answer this question. Are you free from sin? We understand how it works now. We understand how great it is. We understand the complete plan. So please answer, are you free from sin? Let me tell you about two men. The first man is in the Bible. Named Saul. He's a religious guy. Good man. Righteous man. Kept all the laws. He was absolutely sure that he was pleasing God. He said, everything I did, I had a clear conscience. I knew I was living the kind of life I ought to live. 
Then he met Jesus. He hadn't paid any attention to Jesus. For a while he had, he persecuted him, but Jesus wasn't part of his life. That had nothing to do with being free from sin. He, he was doing it all on his own, with his own behavior, with his own righteousness. And then he met Jesus. Now listen to what Paul, Saul did. He prayed and fasted for three days. Prayed and fasted for three days. He experienced, excuse me, he experienced a miraculous healing. He saw Jesus face to face. You list all of those things and you think, this guy's got to be pretty good shape. You know, this guy's got to be all right. If Jesus comes back now, he's got to go straight to heaven. All these things he's done. But, but a preacher came to talk to him in Damascus. And the preacher told him exactly what I've told you for the last five weeks. Again, and I probably did it a little quicker. He probably did it better. But that's what he explained to him. I mean, that had to be what he explained to him. He explained the plan. He explained that it wasn't by our works or Saul's righteousness. He explained that it was a, a salvation from God, a freedom from sin from God himself. And that Jesus was the propitiation, not Saul. And here's how you claim it. He explained everything I've explained to you for the last five weeks. And he finished his little talk with Saul in Acts twenty-two sixteen, And he said, and now what are you waiting for? Now that you understand all of it, what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, and wash away your sins. He said, you're not free from sin right now. I know you're a good man. I know you kept all the laws. I know you prayed and fasted for three days. I know you met Jesus face to face. I know you've been miraculously healed. But you are not free from sin. So get up, be baptized, and wash away your sins. Second man, I just met a week and a half ago. He'd been in the hospital and... He knew that he was going to need a funeral someday. So he wanted to meet me. He had known about Northside. When he was a kid, he visited Northside sometimes. He knew my dad. My dad had done the funeral for his mother. So he wanted to meet me in case he needed a preacher to do a funeral someday. So I went to visit him a week and a half ago. I walked in the door and he started talking. He talked for two and a half hours. I'm not kidding. He didn't take a breath. He's a good storyteller. He told me all about his life. Nice guy. Good guy. Told me everything about his life that I I think he could remember at the time. Wasn't a religious man. In fact, at what point he said, you know, we never went to church or anything like that. And I jumped in and I said, well, we need to talk about that. I said, could, since he had been talking for two and a half hours and I knew he was wore out, I said, could I come back next week? He said, oh, yeah, that'd be great. I said, I'll come back next week. We need to talk about that and some other things. 
last Wednesday, it had been a week. I thought, well, I better call today, see if we can drop over this weekend sometime. His wife called me first. She needed to plan a funeral. Had no idea he was that close to death. Neither did he, neither did she. And you can criticize me. You can second guess me. Should have done something different. You can't second guess me more than I've second guessed myself, but you can second guess me. I don't know his relationship with God. I don't know if he's free from sin. Didn't ask him. I'll bury him tomorrow morning. I will ask you, are you free from sin? The answer is no. What are you waiting for? Get up. Be baptized. And wash away your sins. Let's stand and say.